You're here as we're coming to a close on a summer sermon series that has walked us literally from Genesis 1 through Revelation. Uh, We have explored uh, all the way from Memorial Day until today and ultimately finalizing everything next week a series that's explored the names and attributes of God. We've looked at some of the the classic and historical and powerful names of God, names that both God has given himself and that humanity has given God, and what they've shown us and taught us about God's nature and character. We've gone everywhere from Yahweh to Elohim, Adonai, El Shaddai, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, the Lamb of God, the Word of God, um, the the light of the world. uh, We've just been all over the gamut, right? And it's taken us from... Genesis 1-1, and as we'll see next week, all the way into Revelation, we talk about Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And it's been a great exercise, and just study for myself, and I know for Brandon, but hopefully it's been an experience in which you've been able to look a little bit deeper about the character and qualities of God and what that means for you and for I as we explore these sort of deep patterns and trying to catch a tiny glimpse into who God is. And, and uh, so it's been, been a great series. We're excited about it. We are going to be starting something new on September 11th, which we're excited about as well. So come on our fall kickoff Sunday and, and uh, catch a glimpse of that. We have two weeks left. This morning we're going to be talking about Jesus, the Lamb of God, which is perhaps the most important name of all the names that are given to God. And if you can even actually, I don't, maybe you can't say that, but... I think it is because it's the theological, all it holds everything together theologically. Theologically, it is probably the most important name that we're going to see given to God. And so we're going to unpack that in depth. And then next week, we're going to talk about Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end, and everything kind of in between. So if you missed any of these messages along the way or you're curious, um, they're all up on the website, so you can go, go check them out. But this morning, we are, are kind of continuing that thread. We've been looking at names that were given to God that have been to really ascribe to the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's where we're going to be as we unpack the idea and understanding of what it means to have Jesus as the Lamb of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Jesus as the Lamb of God. So uh, we're going to be in the book of John. Actually, going to be a bunch of places, but we're going to start off in the book of John chapter 1. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to get there. Um, and we're going to kind of move around a little bit and uh, jump in a few different places. Uh, Isaiah 53 we're going to be in. Um, so if you want to mark a few of those. But we're going to start off in John chapter 1, and we're going to explore this name. And as we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to worship. We thank you for guys like Kendall that will step in and lead us in worship for the heartbeat of a community that rallies together, even in deep tragedy and loss, um, coupled with the joy of knowing that we have this eternal Savior that redeems and justifies and cleanses and makes us holy. And as we're going to learn and talk about today, exchanges our sinfulness for his righteousness, that we become the righteousness of God through the substitution of Christ. It's just incredible. And this morning we gather in this place with that theological truth as a backbone, Lord, that you took our sinful condition and you bore it yourself, that we might be called the children of God. Lord, we don't deserve it at all. There's not one of us that walked in this room this morning that deserves your grace or your freedom or salvation, and yet you bestow it because you are a God who is so good and who loves his creation. And so, Lord, this morning we are grateful for what we're going to learn and understand about this great and beautiful exchange that happens between sinful humanity and holy God. Take a moment in your heart just as you sit here this morning, and I encourage you just to ask God to teach you. 
whatever that might mean, um, whatever you need to just kind of lay out before the Lord, just invite him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment in your own heart, just in the stillness of this place, and ask the Lord to allow you to focus on his word, not on my words, but on his word, and ask him to teach your heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you. We do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for those around us, right? We say that everything unfolds on a Sunday morning is not really about you. Be in the habit of caring about the spiritual well-being and direction and hearts of the people around you. And so pray for them. Maybe you don't even know them. Maybe you're here for the first time. Just take a risk. Pray for the person beside you or your husband or your wife or your children or your friend or your spouse or just whatever. And just pray that God would move in them. Be in the habit of praying for other people. So Lord, we turn our time over to you this morning. We ask you to move, to teach us through your word. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. You are the word of God. And that our word that we have in our hands here this morning is a theoponestos, it is the breath of God, and therefore we don't take it lightly. It is <clears throat> the very life of which we base our entire existence. And so teach our hearts. We ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're going to be exploring this idea, this name, this theological concept that is wrapped up in the name the Lamb of God, right? And a lot of the things that we've been exploring this summer <clears throat> are leading us to this place, to this sort of incredible thing that God has begun in Genesis 1 and is bringing about to conclusion through the death and resurrection of Christ. So all of these names are pouring into these attributes, and the culmination really is what we're going to be seeing this morning, the culmination of this incredibly deep movement of redemptive history that brings us to Jesus the Lamb of God. And so we're going to be in the book of, of John chapter 1, where we're going to see this name used. And interestingly enough, even though we're familiar with the phrase the Lamb of God, it's only used twice in Scripture like that. It's used both times by John the Baptist and both times in John chapter 1. We're going to see them both this morning. Now, in other places in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the blemishless Lamb or the Lamb that was slain. But the actual term, the name, the Lamb of God, is only used here and only used by John the Baptist. So let's take a look. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 29 is we're going to start this morning. So on the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man comes after me who has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven <clears throat> as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except the one that sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. And the next day, John was there again with two of the disciples, two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So here's what's happening in John chapter 1. 
John the Baptist, again, if you remember from our John study, is not the John that wrote John's gospel, but John the Baptist, better kind of titled as John the Witness, is the one that was preparing the way, the one that was going before Jesus to basically prepare Israel for what was to come, for who was coming, the coming of the kingdom of God. He was baptizing with water, calling people to repent. And this really stirred up the Pharisees because there's John's out there and he's wearing fur and eating locusts and honey and just kind of acting like a weird guy, doing things that weren't within the common religious system, standing outside in the Jordan, <coughs> excuse me, baptizing all these people, calling for repentance. And so the Pharisees get together and they say, send a couple of our best out to John, figure out what in the world's going on. So a couple of Pharisees go out there and they get with John and they say, uh, hey, what's going on? And John's like, I'm out here baptizing, preparing the one. And that's what happened in John chapter 1. He's talking to the Pharisees. And as he's talking to the Pharisees, Jesus just happens to stroll by, right? And so John goes, hey, that's Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who's coming to take away the sin of the world. And he goes, that's the one I was telling you about that has surpassed me. He's better than me. He's bigger than me. And he goes, you know why I know this? Because the one who sent me to baptize with water, who is God, right? God had sent me to baptize with water, told me this. When you're baptizing in the Jordan and you baptize and you see the spirit descend like a dove and rest on this person, then you'll know that's the one, right? That's what he told John. So John's out there baptizing in Jordan and he baptizes Jesus. And what happens? It says the heavens open, <clears throat> the spirit of God descends like a dove, rests on Jesus, and the spirit of God says, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. John is standing right there. So God who sent him to baptize with water, the, the spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and John therefore says right there, this is the son of God. This is what he's telling the Pharisees, right? And that son of God, also known as the Lamb of God, has come to take away the sin of the world. Pharisees stick around for a day. We see the end of that chapter. Then they come back again the next day. And they're standing out there with John and a couple of disciples. Jesus comes strolling by again. I don't know where they were going or what they were doing. Or Jesus kind of walks by at the right time. But he says, look, there he is again. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. The exact same phrase he used the previous day, only recorded both of those times which is fascinating, right? Interesting. So that's what happens in John 1. And we're introduced in John's gospel to this incredibly deep theological concept that Jesus is called and will be the Lamb of God. And it actually sets the tone for the entire gospel of John, right? Because what we're going to learn about the Lamb of God is it had a very specific purpose from the creation of time on, creation of the world on, and God's redemptive movement. And Jesus is going to be the outpouring of this. And John proclaims it. And he proclaims it to the Pharisees, and he says something pretty incredible, which we're going to get to. He says, this Jesus, this Lamb of God, right, will take away the sin of the world. Well, why is this incredible? Who has the ability to take away sin, to forgive sin? <clears throat> God and God alone, right? So he's saying something really powerful. We'll get to that in a moment. But there's something about this that is unfolding that Jesus has come to do that is divine. And so when we look at the name um, the Lamb of God, we're going to be pointed to a couple of really important things. And it's going to take a little bit of a deep theological dive, but I think it's worth it. So hang in there with me. So what do we know about the concept of the Lamb of God? What does that mean, right? Well, in order to really understand it, we have to go all the way back to the Old Testament and understand that the concept of the name, the Lamb of God, points us to a sacrificial system, right? Now, Brandon and I have talked about this at length over the summer because all of these names have pointed us in some way to God's redemptive movement from the Old Testament onward. 
And this name in particular points us back to a sacrificial system that began when sin entered the picture in Genesis. When Adam and Eve brought sin into and onto humanity, right, this sacrificial system begins to unfold and really unfold in the book of Leviticus. And it points us to a system. And this system of sacrifices in the Old Testament is built on one real truth, and that's this. Humanity is sinful and God is holy. Okay? So we're going to put a whole bunch of things into a really simplified nutshell about this sacrificial system. But it's built on this one truth. Humanity is sinful. God is holy. Those things do not coexist. Right? And sin entered the picture, and therefore, there was going to be a penalty that was due. And God loved his creation, and God did not want to be separated or to literally take his wrath out on creation. So he created a system by and which his wrath would have a object, and that system would allow humanity to come back into God's grace, into God's forgiveness, into God's freedom, until it sinned again, and therefore the sacrifice would be required again. But it was a temporal system that led humanity to a path of repentance, because sin is incredibly real. Here's what we know about sinful humanity. Sinful humanity vandalizes God's holiness. Everything about it that sin does corrupts the holiness of God. Look around the world, you at the world we live in. Sin is rampant. It is about selfishness and self-pleasure. It's about power and money and greed and all of these things. Everything in our life, in our community, and in our world is steeped in this sinful nature. Even in the greatest moments of our life, most of them are still steeped in sinfulness. Even when we try and do the right things, oftentimes we're doing them for ourselves. The reality is we don't go one day, one hour, most of us not one minute without sinning. Now some of us maybe a little better than others, but the reality is sin seeps through us. The way that we talk to our spouses, our parents, the tone, the language, the ideas, the thought patterns, right? The self-seeking, the self-pleasure, the gratification, the power grabs, all of these things. The I want to be seens, all of these things are a result of sin entering this picture through Adam and Eve and corrupting an entire world, vandalizing God's holiness. And if you chase the pattern of the Old Testament, essentially that's what happens, right? Sin leads this perfect creation that God had made, right, into a path of destruction, right? Adam and Eve are forced to leave the garden, and that sets up a system that leads to a corrupt and broken world that goes all the way through Babylon into Egypt and into the world that we sit in today. But God loved his creation. And so he calls Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a promise to you that I am not going to take my wrath out on Israel who will be my people. The world around them may crumble, but I am going to redeem Israel. I will not let their sin, right, destroy them or be the subject of all of my wrath. And so in Leviticus, God creates this sacrificial system by which God's wrath is taking out on another physical part of our world that won't be humanity or God's people because God loved the Israelites. He loved his people and he was gonna use them as an example. And so the system begins in Leviticus to do this, right? The cycle begins. People are sinful and, are sinful and reckless and they vandalize God's holiness. And so God, they are due God's wrath and God's penalty. But God says, no, instead of that, I'm going to have you take an animal and that animal's gonna serve two purposes. One, it's gonna be symbolic. 
And you're going to have to cut its throat and it's going to bleed out and it's going to die and you're going to sacrifice it. And I want you to understand the graphic nature of that because sin has massive and real consequences of life and death. We're not playing games. What's due to you is what's happening to this animal. And I want you to understand the system of it and the nature of it theologically. And so the graphic nature of a sacrifice is a very real symbolism that we are not playing games, that sin deserves death. And so that when an animal was sacrificed, life was taken. Sin is not cute. It is not simply mistakes. It is a violation and a vandalism of God's holiness and therefore do his wrath. That's the story of scripture. And so the sacrifice is the animal bleeds out. It is offered to God and God consumes it. And because of that consummation, right, he writes man to himself again, brings back into harmony with. Because not only was that animal a symbolic sacrifice of the kind of disastrous nature of sin, but it's also symbolic in its substitution. Because that animal should have been the sinner, the person, the people. But God accepts this substitution, right, as this great exchange. However, right, the sacrificial system is insufficient, not because God didn't design it that way. God designed it to be insufficient. It was insufficient because it was never meant to be sufficient. And why is it insufficient? Because the cycle never ends. Because the very next day, <clears throat> the people would go off and chase their own ways. They'd go to please themselves. They'd fight with their neighbor. They'd steal a donkey, right? They'd punch a kid, whatever. I'm sure that was happening. Whatever those things were, the cycle, and they'd have to come back. And so they, they, they started getting farther and spread out. They started doing this only once a year where they would atone for the, all of the sin of the community because they couldn't keep up with this cycle because the cycle was insufficient because it was never meant to be sufficient. The entire story of the Old Testament does this. It points us forward to something else. All of Scripture points us to something else. The sacrificial system is insufficient because it points us to what would be sufficient. Redemptive history from the beginning was always pointing us to something else. And you cannot read the Old Testament and not see it, right? There's a bunch of great examples of it. But perhaps the greatest and most obvious one comes in Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is this messianic text, right? It's a proclamation of the one who would come. Written seven hundred years before Jesus. Isaiah says this. <clears throat> he says, he, this is the one who's to come, the anointed one, the Messiah, he was to be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom they would hide their face. He was despised and esteemed he was not. Surely he took up all of our infirmities. He carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that he brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, right? We're all sinners. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity, the transgression, the sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As the sheep before the shear is silent, he did not open his mouth. So there is something, 
right? And the Old Testament redemptive story that is pointing to something so much greater. This other blemishless, perfect, holy lamb. Now, all of these sacrifices that were offered, right, were always holy insufficient because they only covered the sin that was before them. Then the next day, the next week, the next month, humanity rolls, Israel's roll into sin again, and the system is required again. But all of Scripture points us to a time where there will be a person that will bear the iniquities for all, and he will become the last and only sacrifice ever needed. The blemishless lamb, right? Incredible. Now, here's the incredible thing, right? So we know this points us to a sacrificial system. We know that system is insufficient. It was never meant to be sufficient, right? Because it was always pointing us forward. And it points us forward to the ultimate, what John calls the Lamb of God. And the incredible thing about all this is that the Lamb of God is not a lamb. The Lamb of God is a person. All of Scripture, Isaiah 53 proclaiming, is pointing us to the person, to a person. And that person, right, Jesus Christ, is going to become the last and only sacrifice ever needed for all of humanity. There will be no need for a sacrificial system anymore because what was insufficient now becomes completely sufficient in Christ. And how does this happen? Because God essentially offers himself. That's the deep, beautiful theological thing that's unfolding here. That God so loved his creation that he offers himself in the form of his son to become the ultimate sacrifice to take the due wrath of himself and exchange it for his glory. And so John says in front of all these Pharisees, right? Hey, that guy's cruising by in the sandals? No, the other one in the sandals? No, the other one. Yeah, that one in the sandals. He is the lamb of God. And John tells us that the per- and he's pointing to a person. They're not dragging a lamb by. He That one. And you know how I know it's him? Because I baptized him and the spirit fell on him and rested and God told me that was gonna happen. He's the son of God. I saw it. And he's gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit, right? And John says, John says, he is the lamb of God. He tells us two things about the lamb of God. What does he tell us? The lamb of God has come to do what? He's come to take away sin and to take away the sin of the world. So here's what we understand is the role of the lamb of God. That Jesus has come Right, God's Son, the Lamb of God, the last sacrifice ever needed, completing the, the insufficient, now sufficient cycle of sacrifice by taking away sin. Now, Brandon talked about this last week. Right? I'm going to touch it on just a second. Who has the ability and the right to take away sin? Only God. We know this all throughout Scripture, but the great example comes in Mark chapter 2. You remember the story Brandon told you yesterday. Jesus is gathered in this house with all the Pharisees. And these guys have a friend and he's paralyzed and they want Jesus to heal him. Like everybody did. They all wanted Jesus to heal their people. And so they're like, we gotta get this guy before Jesus. But they go to the house, they take him on his mat and the house is completely full. So what do they do? They go up to the roof, they dig a hole in the mud roof and they lower this guy down, broken, paralyzed, right on his mat in front of Jesus and a room full of religious people. Now, if you know anything about the nature of the handicapped people in those days, they believed that they were sinful. There was a connection between what they thought was sinful nature and a physical ailment. We know this to be true because when Jesus is walking down the side of the road and they come up to a blind guy, the disciples say, hey, Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents, that he's blind? Right? Because they assumed that he was getting the punishment of God. 
And Jesus said, well, neither of them, are, it's not the result of neither of their sin. This happened so that you could see God's glory. And he touches his eyes and the guy can see. But there was a belief that that physical ailment. So what there was a belief was this paralyzed guy most likely was hated by God, had done something or his family had done something, and God was punishing him. He was sinful and unclean. To be lowered into a room of Jesus the rabbi and a bunch of Pharisees would have made the entire room unclean. I mean, it was scandalous. Yet they lowered him down. Jesus is standing there. He says he looks up and he sees the faith of the men. I mean, they believed that they could just get this guy in front of Jesus, right? And so he looks at this guy and he says, son, which is radical, right? He calls him son, which no one probably did. He was an outcast, a paralyzed guy. As far as they knew, he was sinful. No one called him son. His parents probably disowned him. It's pro common practice. The same thing that happens when the woman is subject to bleeding. You remember the story? She comes up and she touches Jesus, him. Everybody despised her and he turns around to her. And what does he say to her? Daughter. Right, this is incredible, right? This whole sermon is wrapped up in there. So he says, son. And everybody's ready for him to do something cool. And Jesus just goes, your sins are forgiven. And it's like, wah, wah. Right, because it was like, here's this guy, lower down. He obviously wants to walk. And Jesus is like, here's one better. You're free from your sin. Well, of course, the Pharisees, being people of the rules, are like, wait a minute. You can't do that. Only God can forgive sins, man. That's what they say in verse six. Only God can forgive sins. It says that Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, right, because he's Jesus, said, what's easier, for me to forgive his sins or to get up and tell him to, or tell him to get up and walk? Well, of course, it's easier to forgive sins because no one can verify it. How do you know? There's no way to prove it. So it's easy for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. Now, of course, the reality of that is impossible to know. But he says, just so you know that I have the authority, he calls himself the son of man, as Brandon talked about last week, the son of man has the authority to forgive sins. Take up your mat and walk. It says the guy took up his mat, he walked out in full view of all of them, and they were astonished. So when we talk about the lamb of God, right, taking away the sin, we're essentially saying that the lamb of God is God. Jesus has the ability and the right to forgive sin. But what's even more remarkable, hang with me, what's even more remarkable is that he has the, forgiving, the right to forgive sin and does forgive sin of the entire world. Now, for John to say this to the Pharisees as he's standing there is incredible, right? Because they were so Israel-centric. Everything was about Israel as God's people. And everyone else was a Gentile or a heathen or a sinful whatever. But the Pharisees had carved this religious experience out by which they were at the top. And if God had favor on anyone, it was only them. In fact, a lot of the New Testament is the Jewish people being frustrated that Gentiles are now grafted into this incredible promise of God. But that's what the Lamb of God came to do. He came to take away the sin and take away the sin of the world. Which means, for you and for me, right, if we're non-Jewish, this is the great promise of the Lamb of God. Is that it wasn't just a covenant that God makes with Israel as he did with Abraham, but that covenant gets extended to all that will profess and believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. What that means is that if you trust in Jesus, your sin is forgiven. Taken away is actually the term. Right? Forgiven is one thing. When you could say, hey, I forgive you. Taken away means <clears throat> it is no longer in our picture. It is no longer something we consult, we think about, or we reference. It's gone. Gone. 
Now, any of you that have been in a marriage, right, you know it's one thing to forgive and another thing to forget. You can forgive someone all the time. You just bring it up later, right? Like, that's the great tool. It's like the power weapon in a marriage. You can forgive in the moment, but man, I'm not taking it away. That's a good one. I'm going to need it later. Jesus, the Lamb of God, takes away, forgives, and removes the sin of the world, which is the single greatest news for you and I that are sitting here is that this promise wasn't just for those that were in the bloodline of the Israelites, but that Jesus was coming to do something bigger for all of humanity. So here becomes the deep part theologically, right? So the Lamb of God comes to take away, to remove sin, and to remove sin of the entire world. So how does he come and do this? Well, this is where things get pretty deep, right? They haven't been there already. The Lamb of God does this by, first of all, coming to die. That's the very existence of the Lamb of God. In other words, Jesus came to this earth to die. The role of the sacrificial lamb was one purpose, death. In fact, Isaiah that we read talks about that. That the whole world would turn their back on this and assume that the Lamb of God was afflicted by God, that God hated it. But that Lamb was going to be taking on all the iniquity and sins and transgressions of the people, and the people would reject it. But that Lamb had one purpose, and it was going to be, sled, it was going to be led to its own slaughter. So when we talk about the idea that Jesus was born to die, that's what it means to be the Lamb of God. Jesus wasn't born to live and then show us three great years of ministry and then be like, oops, I made a mistake and now I'm going to die. The entire purpose of the incarnation, of the inbreaking of heaven into earth, of the cries of that infant and that morning through his mother Mary was to ultimately reach the place where he would be led to the slaughter to die for the sin of you and of me. That's the purpose of the sacrificial lamb. It didn't have another purpose. Its purpose was to redeem sin. Those lambs that were part of the sacrificial system, they were raised for one purpose. They were blemishless. They were put in their own pen. They were kept separate. They were fed differently. Their entire existence was to remove the sin from humanity for that moment. And there was pens and pens of them because there would need to be multiple sacrifices all the time because the system was insufficient because it was never meant to be sufficient. And so they would take the perfect ones and they would hold them to die. And so here goes Jesus strolling by the Judean countryside and John essentially says, that's the one that's here to die. That's what he says. By calling him the Lamb of God, he essentially says, that's the man I was telling you about that has come to die. And when he dies, he's gonna take away my sin and the sin of the world. So how does this happen, right? How does this happen? Well, it happens through this incredible process, and it's a magnificent exchange that mirrors this Old Testament sacrificial system, that Jesus comes and he becomes our sin. In fact, Paul says it when he talks in the letter to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, when he says, he, right, became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, 522. So Jesus became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a magnificent exchange. Now think about that for just a moment, that God, in his perfect humanity, right, sinless, blemishless humanity, came to this earth for one singular purpose, and that purpose was to die. And in that die, then he dies, there's this magnificent exchange. For in him, right, 
we become the righteousness of God. What that means is that we get God's righteousness and he gets our sinfulness. That's what Jesus became. He became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now the point here is not that Jesus became morally a sinner and we became morally righteous. The point here is that we got what we didn't deserve and Jesus got what he didn't deserve. He took on all of your sin, right? All the things that you've done, past, present, and future, at every moment, mine too, all the decisions, the thoughts, the lies, the struggles, the fears, the failures, the power grabs, the inconsistencies, all of those things. And he bears upon himself, which he didn't deserve, right? Blemishless, perfect, holy God. And what does he give you instead? His righteousness, his perfection, his sinlessness. How does that make sense, right? Like, that's crazy talk. Because the sacrificial system was insufficient and God loved his creation and so he was always pointing us to this final moment where would be this magnificent exchange. And that magnificent exchange would be a divine substitution. Now remember, that animal sacrifice was a substitution. That sinful person, people, the Israelites, they should have been on that altar, except God created a system by which he loved them and they didn't have to. So he took an animal and he showed them the degree in which their sin caused pain and death. And it would require sacrifice. It's not easy because sacrifice never is. It has to be worth something. And that animal was sacrificed symbolically because of the exchange of life and death and because you, me, that person should have been there instead. And that divine exchange that happens where Jesus becomes our sin and we become his righteousness is that exact divine exchange. It is where the God of the universe takes on the sin of humanity and dies for it in our place. It's a divine substitution means that Jesus took what you and your place where you should have been, where I should have been. And he gives you his glory and his righteousness and you do not deserve it. I don't either. I'm not even close. And the incredible thing about this exchange, this divine substitution, is that it is once and for all, right? So First Peter actually talks about it, where he talks about the idea Simply, he says this. He says that he, Jesus, bore our sins, all right, this is 224, bore our sins on the tree, the cross, so that we might die to our sins to live in his righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. So that's quoting that section out of Isaiah that we read. By his wounds, he bore our sin, and by his wounds we are healed, meaning that Jesus' death, his sacrificial death, heals us. And when you are healed, you are healed. Right? You are cleansed. You are free. You are done once. There's no doing it again. And that's the glorious beauty of what Christ did on the cross is that you don't have to be sacrificed. He doesn't have to sacrifice again and again and again and again for every breath and every moment that you continue to make mistakes. But when you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that magnificent exchange, that divine substitution happens for you once and for all. Your past sins, your presence, and your ones to come. That if we trust in him and put our hope in Christ, that's the glorious promise once and for all. You are healed. You are not in the process of being healed. You are not healing. You don't have band-aids on your scars. You are fully and totally righteously healed by God because he bore your sin and exchanged that for his glory. 
And the reality is, with that incredible theological truth of what it means to be the Lamb of God, we show up to church once a month because the rest of the times are inconvenient. We play lip service games with God, right? Gratitude does not seep from our soul. Look at what God just gave us and said, we play Christianity as if it's some kind of moral game that fits our narrative. We use it when it fits our narrative and we pass it along when it doesn't. We are oftentimes inconvenienced by the call of God. The call to know him, pray, read, our, read the word, live in such a way that demonstrates his love. But if we really understood what Christ did for us, that we should be there on that altar. If we really grasp that concept, how radically would our lives be different? That we don't deserve any of this. What we deserve is death and wrath. And yet God in his infinite love for humanity developed a system, a system that would be fulfilled through a singular person, his only son, so that by which we would never have to sacrifice again. That's Jesus, the Lamb of God, right? It's remarkable. It's theologically deep. And what we just talked about was this incredible term called penal substitutionary atonement, which if I'd have led with, you'd have all gone to bed. But that's how deep and powerful this is, that what we should have got, God gave away to his son, substituted him for us, and said, I love you. I mean, that is the crux of Christianity, right? It's not a moral aptitude test by which we do our best to just not kill people or be mean or ugly online. The crux of Christianity is that you deserve to die. So God sent his son to become sin for you so that in him you might get his righteousness. And like the Israelites, even in that redemptive, incredible truth where you should be laying on that altar, we are an ungrateful people. Everything is somehow still about us. If we truly understand Jesus is the Lamb of God, it is a game changer. Game changer. And that's why I say that perhaps out of all the names that we've explored, this one may be the most important. Because if there is no Lamb of God, there really is no God. There is no God as we know him. There is no salvation. There is no redemption. There is no freedom. There is only death and wrath. Jesus changes everything. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to open your word. The truth of it, the depth of it, the power of it, the reality of it, Lord, that what you did we don't even deserve, like even remotely, even in this moment. Yet you, in this incredible plan from the beginning of time, Lord, developed this system that would always lead us to Jesus. And that Jesus would come and he would take away the sin of the world and he would take this divine exchange, this substitution that would be once and for all that I never again have to worry about my salvation. I never again have to make sacrifice because Jesus did it all for me. I deserve nothing but death and wrath and isolation and yet you give me glory and righteousness and salvation. How in the world should that work? And yet that's the promise for each one of us. The, Jesus takes away, removes the sin of the world. 
which means as we gather here this morning, if we have given our life to Christ, if we've professed faith in Jesus Christ, if he is our Lord and Savior, there is one sacrifice that happened once for all. We are saved and redeemed. Undeserving so, but freed it and alive. For Jesus, you are the Lamb of God. You are the last and only and perfect sacrifice that will ever be required. You died in our place, and we will never, with a thousand upon thousand lifetimes, be able to repay or understand or earn that love. And so, Lord, turn us into a people of gratitude and a people who understand the sacrifice and exchange that was made and the fact that we get to draw breath and live in the promise of eternity makes the day worth living. Thank you for doing what we could never do, for you are the Lamb of God. Let's stand and close our time in worship this morning. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe We live for you Jesus, the name above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could ever save. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you.
Kendall for leading worship for us this morning. Super grateful for guys in our community that will step up and do those things. But go from this place empowered by the Holy Spirit to understand the reality of that name, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, has come to take your place, to exchange your sin for his righteousness. Totally undeserving, but worth all of our gratitude and should be a life changer. He is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Go in peace.